are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. With me today as co-host is Michelle Jewell Shaw, mom, teacher, photographer, and volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. This is episode 79 of Lighthearted, scheduled for September 7th, 2020. On this date in 1936, Buddy Holly was born in Lubbock, Texas. He once said, quote, Peggy Sue, Peggy Sue, oh, how my heart yearns for you, unquote. Also born on September 7th, 1930, was the influential American jazz saxophonist, Sonny Rollins. He once said, if I didn't have to make money, I would still play my horn. <laughs> well, if I didn't have to make money, I'd still do this podcast. So I completely understand. Where are we going today, Jeremy? We are headed back across the Atlantic to Scotland. We've interviewed people in Scotland in three previous episodes. I kind of like Scotland, in case you haven't figured that out. Yeah. And this time we're going to meet an actual Scottish lighthouse keeper, Ian Duff. Michelle, please help tell our listeners about Scottish lighthouses and Ian Duff. Sure, Jeremy. With its long coastline and about 790 islands, Scotland has been home to a large number of lighthouses. The Northern Lighthouse Board, founded in 1786, currently operates and maintains 206 lighthouses across Scotland and the Isle of Man. Many Scottish lighthouses were designed by the famous Stevenson family of engineers. One of the most famous is Bell Rock Lighthouse off the east coast of Scotland. Completed in 1811, it's the world's oldest wave-swept or so-called rock lighthouse. Automation of lighthouses began in Scotland as early as 1894, when the Ox Cars light in the River Forth had its two light keepers withdrawn. The light was operated using gas and was controlled by a clockwork timer to turn the light on and off as required. Bear Isle South was the last of Scotland's manned lighthouses to be automated on March 31, 1998. Our guest today, Ian Duff, worked as a keeper at 13 Scottish lighthouses between 1976 and 1992. He spent about five years at Skerryvor, a remote station off the west coast of Scotland. Skerryvor is the tallest lighthouse in Scotland at about 156 feet. It was designed by Alan Stevenson and was completed in 1844. Ian Duff also spent about five years at Duncansby Head Light Station at the most northeasterly point of the British mainland. The lighthouse there was designed by David Alan Stevenson and was completed in 1924. Ian has remained involved with lighthouses since his retirement as keeper. Today, he's the president of the Association of Lighthouse Keepers, or the ALK, an organization that provides a forum for everyone interested in lighthouses, lightships, and maritime aids to navigation. The association publishes a quarterly journal called LAMP that includes articles about lighthouse history and technology from around the world. The ALK also has a large archive of lighthouse-related material and is working to establish a study center that will be open to members. 
You can read more on the association website at alk.org.uk. I first met Ian Duff when I was in Scotland on a U.S. Lighthouse Society tour in 2017. I had the pleasure of speaking with him a few weeks ago via Zoom. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking with Ian Duff, a former Scottish lighthouse keeper. And first of all, let me thank you. Thanks so much for, for joining me today, Ian. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, let me ask you, where where in Scotland do you live? I live in the town of Oban, which is in Argyllshire on the west coast of Scotland. I ended up staying in Oban once I'd left the lighthouse service because I'd been based in Oban while I was at Skerryvore and uh, Plada Lighthouse. Uh, then when I left the service, or was made redundant from the service, I decided to settle in Oban. Yeah, you and I met uh, three years ago in 2017. I was over the, in Scotland with uh, the U.S. Lighthouse Society on a tour of the southeastern part of Scotland, mostly in the Edinburgh area, and then down the east coast into England, you know, quite a bit of the English east coast. It was a great trip. I loved it, and it was, it was great to meet you. And we met at St. Ab's Lighthouse, and you spent some time with our group. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it immensely as well, That's, uh, meeting up with you all in Edinburgh mm-hmm. and then travelling to Barnsness and then travelling to St. Abbs with you. Um, it, was, it was very, very good. I really fell in love with, uh, with Scotland. I was in love with Scotland even before I saw it. I think a lot of people are <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, from, <laughs> from uh, me- media and so forth, but uh, it's just a, a wonderful place. Edinburgh is a great city too. First of all, I'd love to know a little, I don't really know how you became a lighthouse keeper. You became a lighthouse keeper in 1976, is that correct? That's correct. Funny enough, when I was a small boy, we lived up in the northeast coast of uh, Scotland in Aberdeenshire. And on a Sunday school outing, we were taken to visit the lighthouse at Kinnaird Head at Fraserburgh. And I'd always been fascinated by lighthouses. And when we were all up in the light room, I thought to myself, well, when I grow up, I want to be a lighthouse keeper. Hmm. However, when it was time came for me to leave the school, um, I was the eldest in a family of five, and my parents were fa- fairly poor, so I um, ended up joining the whiskey industry in Speyside, famous for its malt whiskey. I worked for 12 years uh, in the whiskey industry at uh, two famous distilleries in Speyside. Unfortunately, in 1975, there was a slump in the whiskey industry, and I'd just taken up a new post at McAllen Distillery, and I was told that I was being made redundant. By good fortune, the same day I was told um, I was being made redundant, the Northern Lighthouse Board had an advertisement in the local paper looking for the lighthouse keeper. So I immediately wrote away, and within six weeks, I had joined the lighthouse service. Initially, I went for an interview to the lighthouse at Covesey Skerries at Lossy Mouth mm-hmm. uh, on a winter's day in December. And the principal keeper there was doing the interview, interviewing me for the job. And he was sitting in front of a lovely roaring fire. And he said, oh, you, you get all this free once you join the lighting service and you get a house and you get free coal. I said, right, this is for me. So six weeks after that interview, I proceeded to Edinburgh um, to start my career in the lighting service. And as you mentioned earlier on, the first station I was sent to was St. Abbs, where we were three years ago with yourselves. 
All right, that's where I met you. Let's go through your career, and you started at St. Abbs. St. Abbs was quite an important station at that particular time. It was a radio control station for um, the lights in the Firth of Forth, the Bass Rock, the Bell Rock, and the Isle of May stations. We made radio contact with them three times a day to ensure the keepers were okay in these uh, rock stations. Uh, also monitored the lighters on the island of Fidra, just outside Edinburgh. It was it had been made automatic a few years previously. The monitor for it was at St Abbs. It was also a full-blown weather station, uh, which meant we sent uh, weather reports away every three hours to the Met Office. So the first I was there for six weeks. The first six weeks was intense learning because I didn't know anything about clouds or wind or sea state or anything like that. So I picked up a lot in the, the first six weeks I was there. And the comrades that were there with me were very, very helpful. After that, I, uh, after six weeks there, I went to uh, Lighthouse at Corsal Point on the southwest coast of Scotland. And after a couple of weeks there, I ended up going to Plada Lighthouse, which I'll talk about later on. Well, uh, maybe we talk about Plata now, if that's that's okay. First of all, you know, don't forget we're, we're you're talking to uh, mostly an American audience this podcast. Although some people uh, over in the UK listen to it as well. But uh, for those of us who are not that conversant in Scottish uh, geography, if you could, as we talk about these stations, just say a little bit about where it is. So, where is Plata, and what uh, type of light station is that? Plata is basically a small a very small island off the south coast of the larger island of the Arran in the Firth of Clyde. Plata Lighthouse was the fifth lighthouse that was built in Scotland in 1790. Um, so it was a fairly old lighthouse. It was distinctive in it. It had two towers as well because originally when it was built they didn't have the revolving lights. So they built two towers at Plata to distinguish it from the lighthouse on the Muller Tire. I did, I think, 10 days at Plata that particular period I was at, but later on in my career, I spent five years at Plata um, altogether. Uh, once I'd done duty at Duncan's Behead, I was, they transferred me to Plata, and I did five years there, right up until it was automated. So tell us about uh, your experience at Plata. That's what one of your, was that the longest altogether with the five years? Is that the, the longest you spent at any lighthouse? In five years at Plata, and I also did five years at uh, Duncan's Behead, which is up mm-hmm. in the very north of Scotland, uh, close to the wee village of John O'Groats, which a lot of people have heard about because of the long-distance walking, etc., from John O'Groats to Land's End. Plata was a, a nice, small island, compact. Uh, we all had our own rooms because it, it had originally been a family station. So um, there was still two houses there. So you had plenty of room and you weren't um, confined like you were in, at Skerivore where all the, the rooms are built inside the tower. Um, Plata had houses, outbuildings. Out it was a nice place because we cut the grass and it was lovely and tidy and um, quite historical being built in 1790 because um, it had an underground cellar where the paraffin had originally been stored. I enjoyed the five years there. The weather was, was not near so, so severe at Plada in the sheltered Firth of Clyde as it was, let's say, Scary Vore or Duncan's Behead. Um, it was very seldom we had really, really bad weather at Plada. A minute ago, you mentioned paraffin, and uh, in this country, it's the same as kerosene, right? We generally that's, refer that's to right. it as yeah. kerosene. It's yeah. also 
known as mineral oil. You see that sometimes too. Yes. Yeah. So tell me, uh, how many keepers did they assign to these places? I'm sure it varied from station yeah, to station. Plata was, was an island, but it was classed as a rock station after the families had been moved ashore to the bigger island of Arm. Um, three keepers were on duty for a month at a time, and three were ashore for a month at a time. So there was essentially six keepers assigned to each rock station. Um, and they didn't do a month at a time. The reliefs were carried out every two weeks so that information could be passed on to the next keeper coming on. Whereas if you changed over the whole three you know, you wouldn't have any time to say what had been happening during the month. It was then important to pass on. So generally, the, the reliefs were carried out every two weeks. So what were some of the things, the, some of the duties, you know, typical duties at, at a place like Plata, uh, aside from keeping the light itself? Was there a fog signal there? Yes, there was a fog signal at Plata as well, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So if the visibility dropped to less than four miles, you started up the fog signal. There wasn't a lot of fog in Plada. Um, there's not a lot of fog in the west coast of Scotland compared to like the east coast of Scotland. I mean, we spoke about St Abbs earlier on. While I was at St Abbs, we blew for fog one period, seven days continuously. Whereas at Plada, you, you would be lucky if you blew for seven hours in a month. You know, it was the, the fog is very, very um, unusual in the west coast. That's why originally the first airport in Scotland was built at Prestwick. It's in the west coast of Scotland because the um, it's fog-free virtually. Prestwick's not that far away if you plan out um, as the crow flies. Now, I know in this country and in Canada, a big part of what uh, lighthouse keepers have done, and there's still quite a few staff stations in Canada, and they monitor the weather, send weather reports uh, in uh, several times a day. Was that something you did at Plata and some of these other stations? Yeah, originally at Plata we didn't, but the last three years I was there we did send weather reports to um, HMS Garnet, which was based at Presswick. Every three hours we sent in weather reports from Plata, the, the mm -hmm. last three years. Anything else uh, that stands out as far as uh, life at Plata and uh, duties and that sort of thing? Any uh, memorable storms, incidents, uh, anything like that at Plata? No, very, 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 very um, few occurrences at Plata. One, one um, Sunday afternoon, a yacht ran aground between Plata and um, the south coast of Arran. Um, but I actually, I was in charge of the lighthouse at that time, but I was in my bed in the afternoon because I was going on watch at 10 o'clock at night. But the, it was two young keepers that had, I had assigned with me, and they, they roused me up out of my bed to tell me this yacht had run aground in between. So I've, of course I uh, called the coast, guard, the coast Guard and they called out the inshore lifeboat from Long Lash and they came down and pulled the yacht off. That was basically the only only bit of excitement ever um, happened there. It was fairly uh, mundane routine life. I mean in your month's duty you spent two weeks cooking for the other two keepers and generally the last week you were there, you, were, you made the place um, absolutely spotless again for the next, you know, the relief coming on. Um, you washed down all the tower stairs, the engine room floors, and things, things like that. Yeah. And of course, du during the summertime, we had to whitewash all the, the walls and uh, buildings. By the time I was at Plata, the, the lighthouse board had employed contractors to paint the tower. But I mean, originally we used to do the tower on 
Bosun's chair slung over the top, uh, but that had changed and the lightest board had employed contractors uh, with higher grade paint that lasted <laughs> 10 years yeah. instead of the traditional lime that lasted just a year. So what sort of uh, things did you eat at, at a place like Plata? I mean, the, the lightest board provided uh, money for, for feeding the keepers at rock stations. And traditionally we used all the money they gave us and we we ate very well. Uh, uh, like an order for uh, a fortnight would consist of like two roast lambs, two roast beefs, two roast porks, roast chicken, steak. We ate very well. That sounds yeah. sounds really good. From uh, Plata, I know you went back to Plata later, but you went to Rattray Head? Uh-huh. Lived inside the tower at Rattray Head as well. Um, it was just a half a mile offshore. Um, Bradbury Head's in the northeast coast, about 20 miles south of Kinnaird Head, the, where the Lightest Museum's based in Fraserburgh, on the northeast coast of Aberdeenshire. I remember when I was at Bradbury Head, the principal keeper said, uh, your responsibility of your month here is to look after the fridge. I, I had just left a modernised whiskey industry where everything was push-button and electronic and everything. And I thought, there can't be much to look after with this fridge. But it turned out it was a paraffin fridge. They still had a paraffin fridge. And it was my responsibility to make sure the flame burned for the, the month. I mean, that was fine. But I just thought it was a bit old-fashioned, you know. Yeah. I guess it was probably, uh, would have been a lot of work to move it out and get a new uh, refrigerator in there. So they just left it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were at Rattray Head for, for how long? For a month. Mm -hmm. And then I went home for a two weeks leave. And then I left there and went to Cape Wrath for a month. Mm -hmm. That's right up in the most northwest corner of Scotland. At that time, it had been a family station as well, but by the time I was there, it had been turned into a rock station. So three keepers on duty and three keepers ashore. You crossed on a boat across the Kyle of Durness to get onto a road, and then it was 14 miles up a single track road to get to the lighthouse across a, a desolate moor. It was, and I was lucky, I mean, it was June by the time I was there, and um, it was nice summer weather, and it's quite a popular destination for hill walkers and tourists and everything, so we are kept busy, well, uh, that summer, we kept, I was kept busy taking visitors up to the top of the tower and uh, passed the time very quickly. It's nice weather. I just want to mention something, you've referred a number of times, Some a lot of these lighthouses where you were stationed were rock lighthouses. Here in this country, in the, the United States, we usually don't call them that. They're sometimes referred to as wave-swept lighthouses. Uh, but yeah. the term rock lighthouses I, knew is, I know is used uh, throughout the UK uh, for these places. But what would you say is the definition of a rock lighthouse? A rock lighthouse was, was, de um, it, it was called that because it was manned only by men only. Whereas the, the shore stations, as we called them, your family lived with you at the shore station, like at Duncan's Behead, my, my wife lived mm -hmm. 10 yards from the tower in a cottage next to the tower. But at Cape Wrath, there was only the three keepers on duty, Plada, just the three keepers on duty. Your wives were ashore, and when I was at Plada, my wife was ashore 100 miles away in Oban, you know. We called them all rock stations, but the, the wave one, wave washed ones were, they were originally called pillar rocks, you know, like Skerivore, the Bell Rock. To a lesser extent, Rattray Head, Jahartich, the Chicken Rock, and they were all standard. They were classed as grade one rocks at that time, and all the rest were classed mm -hmm. as grade two rocks. Later, they, they all became just rock stations. 
you got an extra, I think it was threepence a day if you were at Skerry Roa compared to say you were at Plada. I think it was mm -hmm. a, when I started, it was three and ninepence a day in old money at Skerry Roa, where you only got three and sixpence at Plada. You were, you were given an extra threepence because it was considered a more dangerous station, Skerry Roa or the Bell Rock or Chahartuk, etc. It was similar under the old lighthouse service in this country, the keepers at yeah. the the more uh, isolated island rock stations were uh, were paid more. You've anything uh -huh. more you'd like to uh, say about your time was, at Cape Wrath? It was a nice place, Cape Wrath. It's, it's plenty of room to walk about. It was a full weather station as well. It was even a bigger weather station than uh, St Abbs, where the sun registered at Cape Wrath as well to register the amount of sunshine we had. You climbed up in the engine room roof and changed the the chart every night. Um, and read how much sun there had been during the day. Passed that over. I was back at Cape Wrath a number of times after the, after Plada had been automated um, because they didn't have a permanent station for me, so you filled in where somebody was off ill or uh, something like that. Uh, after that, after I'd been at Cape Wrath, the next station they sent me to was uh, Muckle Flugger. It was uh, a wonderful experience to be at Muckle Flugger. I mean, I only spent the month there, but um, it was still a boat relief um, at Muckleflugger when I went there. You went, you left the shore station at the no very northernmost point of Shetland. And I mean, Muckleflugger is the most northerly point of the British Isles. And when you leave there, it could be termed as a fjord, like in Norwegian, you came out on the boat and you saw Muckleflugger perched up on top of this sheer precipice rock. I can remember thinking in my mind when I seen it for the first time, it's like something from Terra del Fuego, you know, it, was just, it looks just so remote and so imposing. The boat then edged close into the base of the rocks and uh, you were swung ashore in a bosun's chair onto a wee landing and then you had to climb up roughly 300 stairs to get to the top of the rock. You look at the pictures and it's so dramatic, they're uh, perched up on that rock and that's the first thing you think of. How, did, how the heck do you get on, on and off yeah. that thing? And life there must have been really interesting. Oh, I enjoyed the month I was there. Um, it was, by this time it was September and uh, the weather was fairly good. Nothing unusual happened, it was, but it was a nice, a nice crew of keepers that was there with me. You know, they, a lot of, like you said, some Keepers were supposed to get on with one another, but a lot of people were a lot better than others. The guys that were here with me were lovely guys. People are people, so I imagine uh, one of the hardest things would be stuck in a place like that to be with somebody yeah. you just didn't yeah. didn't get along with. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't play chess very well, but the two of the keepers played chess at Mucklefugger, so they... Um, they taught me the rudiments of chess, so that passed the time as well. Lots of things like that happened in my career in the lighty service because I couldn't have much hobbies as such, but one keeper came to Scary Boar with us. He'd been in the Merchant Navy. He showed me how to put ships in bottles. So I carried on doing that. While I was at Radley Head, one of the keepers there, he made um, table lamps out of shells collected off the shore, showing me how to do that. I learned how to play chess at Mucklefugger, so I picked up a lot of tidbits of stuff, you know, that um, carried me in good stead with yeah. the time in the service. Also at, Scary, also at each lighthouse, there was a wood turning lathe. At each, every lighthouse had a wood turning lathe, so a lot of keepers made fruit bowls turned in the lathe, things like that. Well, in my, I, when I was at Scary Vore, I made 
a scale model of Skerivore turned in the lathe, you know, with little blocks of wood turned each course, turned each course, then um, made the lantern out of the, the lantern room out of copper. And one of the electrical technicians from Edinburgh got me a flashing unit so that it flashed every 10 seconds the same as uh, Skerivore did. I still have the model. On my Facebook page, I think there's a picture of me holding the lighthouse. If you oh, okay. Okay, yeah. so pe people can look for that. In uh, yeah, you, you have a Facebook page in your name, Ian Duff, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'll definitely look for that. So you you mentioned uh, chess and uh, woodworking, that sort of thing. But uh, I'm wondering what else you did for entertainment, especially at the you know the Rock Lighthouses, the more remote ones. For one thing, did you have television at these places? We had television at the mall. It's it will be interesting if I continue with. After I left Mucklefugger, yeah, um, because the next station they sent me to then was Skerryvore for the first time. When you spoke about the television there, they had a television at Skerryvore, which uh, for the people that don't know, Skerryvore is one of the most famous lighthouse towers in the world, and it's 13 miles southwest of the island of Tyree off the west coast of Scotland. We had a small television set there, black and white. The signal came from a transmitter in Northern Ireland, which was about... 100 miles south of Skerryvore, probably. But the picture was pretty terrible, and some nights it was just unwatchable, you know. Was, I, can remember, I can remember one night sitting, we were trying to watch, the, the football was coming on at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, and the headkeeper said, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to stay up to watch the football tonight. Uh, so, he, But the picture never cleared, it was all white sports. You, you couldn't see the ball. Eventually he said, I'm, I'm giving up, and he went up, off up, the tower to his bed and within five minutes when I'm getting up the picture cleared and myself <laughs> and my friend George seen the football in peace but uh, latterly at Scary Vore they built a new transmitter on the island of Mull and uh, we were able to get um, a good picture from because it, it was only the island of Mull is only about 45 miles away from Scary Vore uh, but that was the first time I was sent to Scary Vore then I did duty at Ruri Coswell Devar, then back at Skerryvore, then Heisker and Arden American, and then back to Skerryvore again. By this time, it was virtually ready for time for me to get a permanent station, you know, the, instead of this all this moving about and covering for people. Um, and wh while I was at Skerryvore, I said, I mentioned to the head keeper that was there at the time, I said, I would love to get Skerryvore here. I said, but I know there's a vacancy at Cantic Head as well, and there's one here. He said, leave it with me. He says, you've been here three times and you're an ideal chap for a station like this because you got on well with, you know, the, the keepers that's here. So lo and behold, um, after I went ashore, uh, a week later, the Edinburgh phoned me to tell me that I'd been uh, appointed to Skerryvore Lighthouse on a permanent basis, uh, which delighted me. My hobby being lighthouses and I'd been assigned to one of the and the premier lights in the world, I thought, at that time, were one of the most beautiful lights in the world. It was uh, designed by Alan Stevenson, designed and built by Alan Stevenson, the, of the famous uh, Stevenson family of lighthouse that's engineers. Correct. Yeah, That's, that's mm -hmm. correct. And Alan Stevenson's initials are actually carved in the rocks and the, hmm. you're down in the summertime. Really? Wow. So, and it's also a very, very tall lighthouse. So I think it's okay. over 100, 150 feet. Yeah, 150 feet to the top of the lantern, 138 feet of masonry. 
mm-hmm. and then sort of 12 feet of the lantern to the top. Yeah, and it's uh, it's there's not much uh, land around around there, right? It's basically there is the, at low water. There's quite a few rocks. You know, you can walk in the summertime. Um, in the wintertime, you you couldn't really get out the tower. Really, um, you're sort of incarcerated in the tower from October to March. You know, with the winter weather. But in yeah. the summertime, you could get down onto the rocks and sometimes sunbathe and a nice day. And even in, even in a wild day, it's scary. It wasn't quite. I mean, it was wild. You couldn't get out, but compared to like the other famous uh, pillar rock close to Skerivor, 12 miles south is Jahartik. It was a much worse posting because the full force of the Atlantic broke on the tower. They only had one sort of rock. Where at Skerivor, there was a number of rocks that sort of broke the force of the waves a bit. But the reef at Skerivor ran for about six or seven miles. You could see the rocks, white water breaking the rocks all the way along, you know. Wonderful experience to be there. On a summer's morning, you could wake waken up in the morning, well, go up in the morning to switch the light off, and you'd see maybe 80 seals lying all over the rocks, you know, in, in, a, in a quiet summer's morning. You could fish at Skerryboard as well. We fished in the summertime off the rocks, caught white fish, you know, but uh, the, it was too rough to fish with a creel. We had a creel to try and catch lobsters, but we never, I, all the th- four and a half years I was there, I think I only caught one crab, whereas hmm. when I transferred to Plada, I took the creel and the, the first day back at Plada, I caught two lobsters the very first day, yet huh. four years ago, because all the fishermen that fished in the area around about Skerivor said it was too rough to get lobsters. What were the living conditions? What were the rooms like inside the Skerivor Tower? The rooms were much more spacious than the Bell Rock or Radway Head even, because we all had our own bedroom. The bunks uh, were built in the, in the bedrooms, not like the English lights. You, you may have seen pictures of the Needles or the Bishop Rock and that, where the bunks were built around the curves of the tower. Well, the Stevensons had a, a more ingenious method than that. Instead of building the bunks around the tower, they built a straight wall across the middle of the tower and they built your bunk straight in the middle. They, oh. they, built the, they built the wardrobes around the, the wall for your clothes, but they, they, they built the bunks straight across the middle. They bisected the tower, and a bunk was on each side, you know, in, in the room. Whereas the English, what they built the beds round round the t- tower. Um, I thought that was a brilliant uh, yeah. way of doing it. The, the Stevensons had, I mean, the, and and the living accommodation was okay, but. It, Got very very damp in the bedrooms in the winter time because uh, there had been a disastrous fire at Skerry War in 1954. The tower had been severely damaged with exploding fog signals, and it cracked some of the granite blocks. Uh, so it was inclined to leak. The, before it was remanned in 1959, they had uh, used a liquid cement called gunite that was supposed to uh, fill in all the cracks, but the, the it didn't really succeed. The, the, the damp still penetrated through some cracks. And I can remember myself and my pal, George Miller, we had bedrooms on each side. And if it was really, really wet weather, we had a lot of pipes at the side of our bed to run the water into a pail because it was used to come in through the, through the cracks. But uh, during my time there, we had, uh, I've spoken about it briefly, we had a, I was going ashore one day and the helicopter landed um, at half past nine in the morning to take me ashore. And a giant sea washed right over the top of the helicopter, broke the rotor blades, 
injured the keeper that was coming on to let me go ashore. So obviously the, the, the chopper was uh, badly damaged. So we, the, the rest of that day, myself and the pilot stripped the chopper, took everything that had the valuable radio equipment and rotor blades and everything out of the chopper, still stored them inside the base of the tower. Uh, the other chap that was on duty with me, Gordon MacDonald, he was an ex-merchant seaman, and the pilot said to him, if you could make, if he could splice two pieces of rope together to uh, facilitate a seeking coming from Presswick to try and airlift the relief chopper off the helipad, that would be great. So Gordon sat in the tower and spliced the ropes, and then at uh, half past five in the afternoon, a sea king came from uh, Prestwick and successfully airlifted the damaged helicopter from Skerivore and landed it in the airfield at uh, Tyree, 13 miles away. Then he came back and winched the pilot and the injured keeper uh, up off the rock. Obviously, the sea king couldn't have landed at Skerivore. It's too big, you see. He would have hit the tower. The, the pad's built close to the base of the tower, so it, it had to winch them back up. It was interestingly, the first thing they did when they when they came to airlift the damaged helicopter, they winched a photographer down first to take photographs of the, the rescue attempt. I got a photograph uh, sent back from them, which I used and I lent it to somebody last year, uh, and I've not got it back yet due to the coronavirus. Yeah. So um, myself and Gordon got letters of commendation for the work we did in, in salvaging the, the helicopter. Mm -hmm. We heard it at night when we were, it was about 10 o'clock at night before we got back into the tower. And the, the head keeper, who'd been up in the warm radio room all day, said, oh, it'd been a tremendous day. And we said, well, uh, he'd been in the warm radio room and Gordon and me had been out in a raging gale doing the base of the tower. So I said to him, you, uh, we're entitled to, uh, there was brandy kept if somebody got soaking wet in the, in the medicine chest. So uh, I said, you better give Gordon and me a shot of brandy. And uh, so he gave us a glass of brandy each, but he went off to his bed after being in the warm radio room all day. So we were in uh, sitting in the living room and we had the radio on. The, the, it came on the Scottish news that night that helicopter had been extensively damaged at Scary Boa this morning. So we listened to that and we'd been part of it. That was really the only amazing thing that happened when I was at Scary Boa. Well, lots of other various things happened. But Nothing exciting as such, you know. We'd, the principal keeper fell down the stairs twice. He shattered his heels. Uh, he had to be rescued. But I loved my time at Skerivore. I really loved it. And then, of course, once I had no station, when Plata was automated, I went back again for did another three spells of duty at Skerivore. And also, uh, while they were automating Skerivore, the lighthouse board um, asked me to be available in Oban for the whole, for a whole year while they were automating it in case one of the keepers took ill that I could go out there because I knew where all the ropes went, you know, because there was a lot of boat work taking place while they were automating it. Fortunately, I sat, sat in Oban for a whole year and I was never needed to go out <laughs> for ah. full pay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one thing I was just wondering about, some of these places are, are quite isolated, but did uh, did people, uh, you know, small boaters, that kind of thing, did they ever just show up and say they wanted a tour of the lighthouse? Nobody ever visited Skerrybore while I, I was there. Well, there was one French fishing boat uh, pulled into the grate and, and came up. I was in, it must have been in a 
10 o'clock shift at night. I was in my bed in the afternoon. They, they came in and spoke to Gordon and then left again. But that was the only ones. It, it, it was too dangerous. If you don't know how to get into the landing scaribore, it's very, very dangerous to um, attempt a landing even. I mean, I went back there. I went back twice in recent years. Luckily enough, about eight years ago, we were lucky to land in the in a calm day and then I went again two years ago with a friend of mine but uh, it was too it was too dangerous to even attempt to get near the greatest yeah what kind of a boat did you have there we, we didn't have a boat for no time. boat at all just no 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 yeah we were relieved by helicopter from the time I was by the time I was getting yeah. the helicopter that had been built I mean you left your house and open in the morning at nine o'clock down to the light you step or jumped on the helicopter and half an hour later you were in Steregor, 60 miles out, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Earlier on when they just went back and forth by boat, it must have been, I imagine there was probably some keepers that died over the years. You know? Well, the, the boat, the boat, uh, boat reliefs were carried out at the end of a grate and it stuck right out in the middle of the sea. We had a derrick arm and a bosun's chair for swinging it out. We still use that, uh, when I was there, not to affect the reliefs, but we used it when the ship came out to obviously land a thousand gallons of fresh drinking water for us and, and uh, two and a half thousand gallons of diesel and that. The, the ship's master would send some of the crew ashore for the, you know, to set up pumps to pump it out of the small boats into the tanks that were built at the base of the tower. So there were a few other lighthouses where you... Uh works that we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, uh, which ones uh, did you spend much time at? I, I've got the, the list here, but after uh, your first in a Muckleflug, uh, not Muckleflug, I mean at, at Scarivore, uh, what came next? They asked, they said, uh, you've done four years at Scarivore, now where would you like to, you, any preference of where you'd like to go? And I said, well, I would like a lighthouse in the East Coast. I, hope, I was hopefully thinking of Gardelness, which is in more or less in the city of Aberdeen, you know. Um, however, uh, when they phoned up, they told they um, they're going to Duncan's Behead, and I said, well, I asked for a station on the east coast. She said, Well, it is in the east coast. It's in the very northeast corner of Scotland. We went up to Duncan's Behead. It's built. It was right up in the top of the cliff, two miles from the village of John O'Groats, and a foghorn. Quite a lot of fog there. Very, very, very strong winds. There's a square lighthouse tower, because it was only built in 1922, and by that time, the lighthouse board, you know, decided that there was no really any need for a round tower at the point of the Duncan's base, so they built a square tower, and then they also built a square tower similar at uh, a lighthouse in Shetland called H&S, who you may have heard of a, a writer called Sharma Carpsel, an American lady bought the houses there at one time. It's similar to Duncan's Behead, they were both square towers, both built in the early 1920s. Uh, Duncan's Behead was a busy station as well when I went there because uh, it was responsible for the radio operation for the, all the Orkney Rocks or Island lighthouses. We spoke to um, Stromer, Pentland Skerries, North Ronaldsey, Sewell Skerry, uh, Copensey, three times a day to make sure the keepers were all um, okay there. As I said, busy with fog and fairly busy with visitors in the summertime as well. Um, obviously, with the village of John O'Groats, um, the population of the village of John O'Groats is about 60, but in the 
summertime, the population's about 6,000 every day, you know, we tourists uh, land in the John Coach, so we quite a lot of visitors in the summertime, and the light is there. As I said, the winds were very, very strong at uh, Duncan's Bay. Uh, the cliff, the lighthouse is about 200 feet above the sea because the cliffs are about 200 feet high. And it, it is a treacherous bit of water, the Pentland Firth. Um, but you didn't see the height of the waves because you were so high up. But the wind was incredibly strong. I mean, in October each year at Duncan's Bay, we put... Uh, wire screens in the windows it was faced the sea because the wind used to break off chunks of rock and shatter the windows of the dwelling houses and they wow. stayed on until April so and then um, uh, my son was a small boy uh, when we were there and I mean the wind was so strong in the morning a taxi came to take him to school the lighthouse board paid for the taxi and uh, but you had to hold them down to get him into the taxi the wind was so huh. so fierce wow the time I was there, that was probably one of the times I got the biggest fright. And we, on Christmas Eve, one of the years we were there, we had garages for our cars there, but the, the wind was so strong and the garages were so feeble that I was worried that my garage door wouldn't shut right and it had been wedged with wedges, but the wind was threatening to go into the garage and lift. The, the roof was already roped down with wire stanchions into the, into the ground. But I thought it's going to lift the whole lot of the garages. So I said to my wife, "Will you come out and help me wedge this door?" And we, so we went out of the house along to the garage. We tried to wedge the door, but the wind was too strong. So we were going back to the house, which was about twenty yards from the garages, and the wind just picked the two of us up off the ground. This was about ten o'clock at night, and threw us against the engine room wall. And we just both landed in, on there's a sort of pavement around the wall. And uh, I can remember, I got such a fright, and so did she, but we both burst out laughing that we'd actually been lifted right off the ground, you know? Wow. So the same night, my TV aerial blew off the, <laughs> the roof of the house as well. What the says, unbelievable. I'm I'm sorry, so I didn't quite catch that. What what went off the roof of the house? Oh, the TV. The TV aerial, aha, for the TV. Okay. All right, antenna as we call them. Yeah, we used to. Yeah, antenna. We used to. Have, everybody used to have those on their roofs. I think uh, younger people have no idea what we're talking about because it's all right. <laughs> all cable all cable TV now. But yeah, it used to be yeah. antennas or aerials on on roofs to get TV reception. Yeah. Uh, so any so you spent five years at Duncan's Head. Is there anything else? you'd like to, to mention anything that really stands out? No, that was it. I mean, Dungasby was an, an important station as, as such. Well, it's, it showed the sort of what people are missing now that there's no lighthouse keepers there. Every Sunday night, if you were on duty for 6 to 10 at Dungasby Head, you would receive numerous phone calls from fishing boat skippers leaving the ports of Peterhead and Aberdeen asking about the conditions at the entrance to the Pentland Firth. You know, so once the keepers were withdrawn, that's no longer there, you know, for the fishermen to find out the weather conditions in the Pentland Firth. There had been a serious uh, fishing disaster just south of Duncan's Behead, about half a mile south of Duncan's Behead in 1959, where the crew of a fishing boat, 13 of a crew of a fishing boat had been lost on the rocks. There was a memorial service for them held this year, well, December last year, just before the coronavirus uh, outbreak and I went up to represent the Lighthouse Board at the memorial meeting and since then the 
people of John O'Groats, the foghorn was taken away from uh, Duncan's behead after the station was automated. But one of the villagers rescued the, the actual horn itself, and it's now in position at the village of John O'Groats next to a memorial to the fishermen that were lost in the 1959 disaster. So after my five years there, that was when I went back to Pladau that we spoke about earlier on. And then after the five years at Pladau, we uh, had no station, obviously. That's when they, they asked me to be in standby for Skerivoa. And then uh, during that period, I did duty at Cape Wrath again, Heiska, Rinsavilly, Kaffaman. The Kaffaman uh, was a modern lighthouse. It was built in 1968 off the south coast of the Isle of Man. Uh, the commissioners are Northern Lights, so the Northern Lights Board are responsible for the lights in the, the Isle of Man. So I did, I think, two, two spells of duty at the Carpet Man. It was a, a modern station, because it was built in 1968 with luxurious accommodation for the, the keepers um, inside, and a nice big island to walk about in. Plenty of historical stuff there. It was the two original lighthouses, plus the new lighthouse, plus the Chicken Rock, which is a mile offshore, just sitting in the Irish Sea as well. Um, also, during that period, uh, I went to Fair Isle, uh, the two lighthouses in Fair Isle. The Fair Isle North lighthouse had been automated. Fair Isle is a small island, for them that don't know it. It lies between the Orkney Islands and the Shetland Islands. Uh, so two lighthouses, Fair Isle North and Fair Isle South. The lighthouse at Fair Isle South is still manned, um, but the light at the north had been automated. But uh, when I went there, I was in charge for the month I was there because um, I was a senior keeper. We looked after the south light and then we drove up every couple of days to the north light to make sure it was functioning okay because it hadn't been long automated. So I spent an interesting month in Fair Isle. Um, it had luxurious accommodation. It had been upgraded as well uh, over the years. It was akin to the Kaffa Man. Mm. That, was that was virtually my my career, I think. Your lighthouse keeping career ended in, uh, was it 1992? That's right, yeah. It was probable that they could have found me another station, but my wife and me wanted settling over, whereas if they'd found me another station, I might have ended up in the Butter Lewis lighthouse was still manned at that time. We didn't really want to move all our stuff away up to Lewis and then to try and come back and find a house in Oban, so we decided I would finish a wee bit earlier because uh, the personnel, of, when I volunteered to leave early, the, the personnel officer said, you you were the last person we were expecting to, to leave early with your interest and knowledge of all the, the Scottish lighthouses. And it, well, all I, lighthouses in my hobby and I'd communicated with keepers from Australia and New Zealand, and, well, Chris Mills and, you know, yeah. Like Irish lighthouse keepers. Um, but I mean, my, my interest in lighthouses hadn't gone away. I mean, I had joined the Association of Lighthouse Keepers. That was formed by seven lighthouse keepers um, when we knew that the lighthouses were going to be automated, a charitable organisation. It's uh, anybody can join. It was originally formed by seven keepers, mostly English keepers, but I was one of the, the original ones. I'm now lucky enough to be the president of the Association of Lighthouse Keepers because they still want, there's, there's very, very few Lighthouse Keepers left in it um, because a lot of them have passed away. Uh, but it's open to um, any Lighthouse enthusiasts. So um, two or three years ago, they asked me, I, the president was stepping down because he suffered from ill health. 
and I had been the Scottish representative for a number of years. So they asked me, would I become the president as well? So I was very honored to be the president. And the Association of Lighthouse Keepers puts out a, a magazine, right? Lamp, yeah. Lamp, yeah. 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 Nice, uh, nice, nice magazine. Four times a year we get Lamp. You mentioned Chris Mills a few minutes ago, and I just want to mention that Chris Mills is a mutual friend of, of ours who's from Nova Scotia, former lighthouse keeper, author, radio personality, and so forth, and uh, just a, a great guy. So you've known Chris even long. I've known Chris for about 20 years. You've known him a lot longer than that. So what what did you do after 92 uh, when you ended your lighthouse career? I uh, entered into a taxi business uh, in Oban with mm -hmm. uh, another partner. And we ran that for a number of years. Uh, I did taxi driving and I employed some people to work for me as well. And they... Uh, the Lighthouse Board gave us a, there was still a lot of keepers, so they gave us work as well. I mean, we used to pick up keepers at Fort William and take them down to Oban, pick up keepers in Oban, take them to Glasgow Airport. So um, that's what I did. And then um, one day my wife came home from the hospital and she said, um, they're looking for a switchboard operator at the hospital. That's similar to what you used to do at Duncan's Behead. They said, no. And I said, oh, well, similar you know, because we switched the phones through Duncan's Bay to the rock stations. So I took up a post at the, the Lawman Islands Hospital as a switchboard operator, operating the switchboard at the hospital. I spend a lot of time, of course, going away on ALK trips and stuff, you know, uh, stuff like that as well. So, and I do um, lots of lighthouse talks to, you know, like local cancer groups, charity groups, school children, you know, I mean, I had five lightest talks all lined up for April and May, and they were all cancelled because of the, the COVID. Uh, I had an Isle of Man trip planned for May, and then we had the ALK annual general meeting planned for Belfast in September. Everything fell to bits with the COVID uh, pandemic. I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky as well in that if newspapers or television people contact the lightest board uh, asking to talk to a keeper, the Lighthouse Board very kindly, well, they phoned me, I was first to say, you don't need to talk to them again if you don't want to, but if you will, will you do it? So, you know, I feel honoured in that way that, you know, they, they, they appreciate what I do. And I was lucky enough to take part in that, that programme, the Lighthouse Stevenson's, you know, when the, the Bell Rock was 200 years old. So, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. so very enjoyable. Sure. Well, you're a good representative for uh, for the Northern Lighthouse Board and and for lighthouses and I've seen you quoted in quite a few articles uh, yeah so that's that's great that you're able to do that so uh, I want to wrap things up uh, here soon but let me just ask you you mentioned uh, you mentioned one station that that's still staffed it was at Fair Isle but in in Scotland are uh, is, are there other staff stations at this point no, there's no there's no staff stations left now they're there are none there's none they're all automatic yeah, mm -hmm. they're all automatic. What they have now is the what's called uh, a retained lighthouse keeper. Okay. Now he doesn't. He, he a friend of mine is uh, a chap called Brian Johnston. Now Brian was originally a keeper um, in at Cape Wrath. He was also a trained mechanical engineer, so he did a couple of years at Cape Wrath as a keeper. Then he became what was called an artificer with the Northern Lighthouse Board, they, they, they came around and maintained all the engines and it, all the lighthouses. 
which he left the light of service during the oil boom in Shetland to work in the, you know, the oil industry in Shetland. But he kept his interest in lighthouses and he, he maintains he should never have uh, left the lighthouse service. So he, Brian, is now what's classed as the retained lighthouse keeper for Shetland. Now he looks after all our visits, if, if there's anything goes wrong, all the lighthouses like Sumberhead, Mucklefluggah, H&S, Bressy to a lesser extent because it's not run by the Northern Lighthouse Board now. But he also looks after all the minor lights in Shetland as well. And if you're ever lucky enough to go to Shetland and get in touch with Ryan, you're guaranteed to visit every lighthouse and get, and get into them, which is difficult for a lot of people. You know, you can't get in. You can visit a, an automatic lighthouse, but you cannot get entry. But in Shetland, if you get in touch with Ryan, you can get into the whole lot. I mean, I'd never been into Outscary's lighthouse until a couple of years ago when I met up with Brian and um, I was able to visit Outscary's for the first time because that was a tower where the keepers originally lived inside the tower as well. So it's the same in Keith Ness. They've got a retained lighthouse keeper that looks after North Head, Duncansby Head, Dunnett Head, dotted around the coast, but they don't stay at the lighthouse. They just maybe spend an hour a week, you know, checking the batteries are okay or anything's okay. I have one more question for you, Ian, for bonus yeah. points. Okay. <laughs> uh, what, what did you like best about your time as a lighthouse keeper? I just, I just loved it. As, as I said earlier on, I mean, I loved being at Skerryvore. Uh, I mean, Lighthouse has been my hobby. I loved, as I say, you, at Skerryvore in the wintertime, you could stand at the, down at the door, which is 30 feet up off the rock. You know, you have to climb up 30 feet off the rocks to get in the entrance door. You'd stand there and watch the sea for two hours at a time, breaking you know, over your head at the door, jump back in, and then go up for your coffee at 11 o'clock in the kitchen, <laughs> and then go back down, because there was very little work to do at a place like Skerryvore during the day, because the generators, you all had the generators to look after, but it wasn't an extensive station like Plada where you had a lot of painting to do, because everything was self-contained inside the tower, so you could spend hours watching the sea, and then as I said, in a summer's run, and you up switching the light off and you could look down and see all the seals lying there. I just loved every minute of it. Um, it's like, I think when they made that documentary, The Light of Stevenson's, um, Jimmy Oliver was on it, you may have heard of him, he used to be the assistant manager of the Lighthouse Museum at Fraserburgh. He, Jimmy was on that programme as well and they, they asked, what would you do if they employed the Lighthouse Keepers again? And Jimmy's answer was, I will be first in the queue. <laughs> so, That's great. And I, that would be the same, I think. I mean, when I think of it now, I regretted actually leaving a few years early. Um, but, you know, family life had to come first at that particular period. So, uh, But, I mean, ever since then, I mean, I've enjoyed every... Every minute. I mean, if we go away any LK trips at night, if we're having a social thing, um, a lot of people at me will say, um, right here, tell us a few stories of your time in the service, you know, and we'll have a great laugh at night. Well, I'm, I have a feeling there's a lot more stories, so I hope maybe we can do this again sometime. But thanks, take, thanks very take much. care, Ian. Thank you. Yeah, All right. Thanks. Bye.
Glenn Stevenson, one of the great engineers of the Stevenson family, designed Scary Vor Lighthouse and more than a dozen others. He was also the uncle of author Robert Louis Stevenson. He had strong literary interests and was fluent in Italian, Spanish, French, Greek, and Latin. He wrote many articles on lighthouses and other subjects for the Encyclopedia Britannica. He was stricken with paralysis in 1852 at the age of 45. When Alan Stevenson died in 1886, the Northern Lighthouse Board expressed their deep and abiding regrets for the loss of a man whose services had been to them invaluable and whose works combined profound science and practical skill. Scotland has a very rich lighthouse history, and Ian Duff is an important part of that history. You can read about the Northern Lighthouse Board and many Scottish lighthouses at nlb.org.uk. And again, the website for the Association of Lighthouse Keepers is alk.org.uk. Also, I want to mention something else. Next week, one of our guests is going to be photographer Mike Leonard, who will give some digital photography tips. On September 12th, Mike will be aboard a Sunrise Photography Cruise from Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. The cruise will provide an opportunity to photograph some of the offshore lighthouses near Booth Bay Harbor. To find out more about that and Mike Leonard's other events, go to phototourismbymike.com. Thank you to all the members, staff, and volunteers of the U.S. Lighthouse Society in Hansville, Washington, and around the world. Check out uslhs.org to read about all the things the Society offers. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine